Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. News. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, April 10th, 2023. Today, Texas Governor Greg Abbott wants to pardon a convicted murderer. The federal probe into the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General ramps up. A MAGA judge bans Mifeprestone nationally as another federal judge orders an injunction. The Pentagon and the Department of Justice are looking into a classified documents leak. Federal prosecutors seek the longest January 6th sentence yet. Israeli spy chiefs work to undermine Netanyahu's attempt to gut the judiciary. And Vice President Kamala Harris visits the Tennessee Three. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. Happy weekend. Happy holiday weekend. Whatever holiday you're celebrating, I hope you had a good one and a peaceful one and a relaxing one. I had a very nice weekend. Uh, Saturday, I went to a comedy show. My friend DJ Sandu was in town at the Mic Drop Comedy Club, and I wanted to have a laugh. So I went out and I watched that. It was awesome. It was incredible. So thank you very much to my friends there at Mic Drop for for hosting me and having me and and giving me a, a it's just good belly laughs that I haven't had in in a minute because Dana's gone. She's the one who makes me laugh every day. And uh, I miss her. She'll be back soon. And we are going to have some more guest hosts, including Amy Carrero this week. So if you have something you want settled in Amy's court, 
send it into us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. That's also where you can send the good news. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Tennessee, where, as I said last week, autocracy is clearly afoot as they expelled the two black members and the, the white woman stayed by a one vote margin. And I mean, it's it's just absolutely bananas what they're doing. You know, they during his, uh, you know, Justin Jones's particular, you know, when the charges were read against him or whatever you call it in the Republican House rules in Tennessee, that, you know, oh, one of his egregious things was that he stayed on the floor for 15 seconds past the time he was supposed to be on there. And, and, and you know, everyone's like, well, you shouldn't break the rules. That's what you get for breaking the rules. But there's people who have peed on other members' chairs. There, I mean, there's just so... We have in the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate, we had Senator Ted Cruz and Senator Tommy Tuberville, Tuberville, whatever his fucking name is, fuck that guy, Tuberville, debate Arizona electoral votes for longer than two hours. That is against the rules. It's also against the law. It's against the Electoral Count Act. But nobody wanted to try to expel them. And again, just a message to everyone who's like, why didn't the Dems expel the seditionists from the U.S. Congress when they had a majority? I just want to remind you, it takes a two-thirds majority to expel a member of the House of Representatives or the Senate. And there is another way to do that. That is through the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and that is for the states to do themselves. And it did happen, like North Carolina. That's why we don't see Madison Cawthorn anymore. So there are remedies. They're not exactly easy remedies or fast remedies, but there are some remedies. But the vice president went and Joe Biden, President Joe Biden also spoke on the phone to the Tennessee Three, uh, Justin Pearson and and uh, Justin Jones. And they've been on the Sunday shows. Uh, just I, And I have watched that speech, Justin Pearson's speech, like 20 times now, the five minutes that he had before they voted to expel him. Just absolutely incredible human being. And I can't wait to see where these lawmakers go because now they have a national spotlight. This was absolutely one of the dumbest moves, not only fascist, not only racist, but one of the dumbest moves. And I expect the Department of Justice to step in here and uh, and do something about this or at least file a lawsuit because not only now, you know, when they expelled Justin Jones and, and they were getting, they hadn't done the second vote yet, on uh, Glory Johnson. Is that her name? I can't, I'm sorry if I'm forgetting her name. I was like, oh, well, that's it. Here comes the DOJ with the First Amendment violations, right? A, a lawsuit because this body has violated the First Amendment rights of these members, assuming all three were going to be expelled. And they didn't expel Rep. Johnson, Gloria Johnson. And I, I, I was like, oh, well, now you can add civil rights to that lawsuit as well. Just stunning fascism and autocracy. Unbelievable. And that's also what we're seeing down in Texas with this MAGA judge. And I know a lot of uh, people, including Senator Wyden, are calling for Joe Biden to ignore this ruling. I don't, I don't think that I agree with that. Just like we didn't ignore Judge Eileen Cannon's ruling, we fought it and we won. And I think we'll win here too on standing. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Prosecutors at the Department of Justice are seeking the longest sentence for a January 6th rioter, 188 months. This is the seditionist that smashed Officer Hodges in the doorway. And we remember, we all remember seeing that video. This would be the longest sentence handed down so far if they give 188 months. But it's Judge Trevor McFadden. And I imagine I'm going to say 90 to 94 months tops. 
if that, less than half of what the DOJ's max is in their ask in the sentencing memo. And Greg Abbott apparently wants to pardon a murderer. Law and Order Party wants to pardon a murderer who shot a protester in Austin in 2020. They're saying that it was self-defense, much like a Kyle Rittenhouse thing. But the jury, the Pettit jury in the trial, saw that video and looked at the evidence and decided that it was not self-defense and convicted him. So now Abbott wants to step in and, much like Netanyahu is trying to do in Israel, just plow over the judiciary. Just plow over it. And I I imagine the DOJ will file in this particular case uh, as well, opposing this, because what? Anyway, there's a lot going on in the news. Those were just some of the quick hits, but we have some more deep dives into some of these stories. So let's get into it. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. You guys remember a Trump appointed inspector general for the Department of Homeland Security named Kufari who seemingly, in my opinion, but this hasn't been proven or anything yet, obstructed the January 6th committee's investigation into the missing Secret Service texts from January 6th by failing to inform Congress for months. I knew he was crooked, yet Dems in Congress were calling for him to investigate the missing texts. Let me read some of my previous tweets about Kufari so we can get sort of a general idea of what I've thought about him. In July of last year, I said, what if Donald, Chad Wolf, Cuccinelli, and the Inspector General Kufari had all this planned out? What if in the fall of 2020, while planning the Green Bay sweep, they also planned a phone swap right after Donald left office? Knowing Donald, I could believe the plan was to collect all the phones starting January 27th, give everyone a new phone, and then sit on the old phones until the record's retention time requirement lapsed, usually 18 months and then wipe them all within policy guidelines, quote unquote. Then have your corrupt inspector general tell Congress right after that 18-month mark that he's super sorry, but he just can't find any of the texts because we lost him in a phone swap and we purge records every 18 months. Right after the 18-month record retention policy expired, he comes forward and says, oh, I don't have them. And then have the corrupt inspector general open a criminal investigation and kill all the other investigations, especially the one being conducted by the Secret Service that was finding metadata. Remember that? The U.S. Secret Service said, oh, we got some metadata. And in comes Kuvari and says, nope, I'm the inspector general of the DHS. You all stop all your investigations. I'm investigating. Much like Bill Barr told Berman at the Southern District of New York to call Cy Vance and shut down his investigation into Donald Trump's hush money payments. Just shut it down kill all the other investigations. Donald wants his corrupt inspector general to be the only one investigating. So plan the crime, commit the crime, hand over phones with crimes on them, delete the crimes, wait 18 months, put a criminal in charge of investigating the crimes, and tell Congress a week after the 18-month passes that you lost everything. But you'll get to the bottom of it. This might have something to do with all of the government employees burrowing that Donald Trump did, you know, all that, the burrowing. Of, of employees, along with hampering the transition so these crooks could stay in place, not to mention his Schedule F plan to fire non-loyalists and get rid of potential whistleblowers. Hi. I tweeted, what other agencies had phone swaps? I would check first where Donald installed inspectors general, like the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, the State Department, HHS, Department of Transportation. Sounds far-fetched, but is it? Then later that day, update. 
Kufari knew about the missing text in May of 2021 and said nothing for a year until after the 18-month mark. Then August in 2022, I tweeted, and there it is. The Department of Defense text messages are missing. I said just right before that, what other departments where Trump has installed an inspector general? Remember when he fired a bunch? DOD was part of that. And I said, every story about this will just confirm that Kufari is complicit. And then in August, the Dems sent a letter to the IG Kafari demanding internal communications and showing a cover-up at the agency, including altered language in memos about the DHS investigating into missing Secret Service text messages. And then the DHS washdog who bungled the investigation resigned his investigator job after his employer accused him of misleading them, founding he broke the ethics rules. Very interesting. Of course, later, about a week later, DHS Kufari's office suppressed a memo about missing text messages. We learned that. And, I, you know, I kept retweeting that. And then a couple days later, was there anyone in the media that knew Kufari was quashing the Secret Service text message investigation on purpose? Was there anyone? Yes, it was me. And then, of course, uh, Kufari, you know, I said he must be investigated. I tweeted that. And then Scott McFarland tweeted in September CBS News says 25 cell phones of Secret Service agents involved in the response to January 6th were turned over to the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General. I was like, why are we giving these to Kafari? No, 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 no. Well, we have news out this weekend. What we didn't know at the time, or what I haven't known, is that a panel of inspectors general tasked with investigating corrupt inspectors general has been investigating Kufari. How did we learn this? Because Kufari is suing that panel. This is from Lisa Rain or Rhine, I'm not sure, R-E-I-N, at the Washington Post. A nearly two-year investigation into allegations of misconduct by the DHS chief watchdog expanded this week to include his role in the missing Secret Service text messages from January 6th. On Monday, investigators demanded records related to the deleted texts from the Office of the Inspector General Kufari, an appointee of President Trump, whose office shut down an inquiry into the Secret Service messages last year amid the January 6th committee's probe. The records request, which was revealed in a federal lawsuit this week, filed by Kufari and his staff against the panel of inspectors leading the probe, suggests new urgency in a high-profile investigation that began in May of 2021. And this has since evolved into a wide-ranging inquiry into dozens of allegations of misconduct, including partisan decision-making, investigative failures, and retaliation against whistleblowers. Democratic lawmakers have previously sought answers from Kafari about when he learned about the missing texts, information that could shed light on what happened on January 6th and during the days leading up to the attack, and why he did not more aggressively try to recover them. I told you, because he was sitting on them waiting for that 18 months to pass. Kafari has denied any improper conduct and argued his efforts to improve what he describes as a dysfunctional office he inherited, having been met with resistance from employees. The probe has paralyzed the inspector general's office, alienated Kufari from the watchdog community, and led calls to President Biden to fire him. The president has signaled he intends to stay out of the process until the panel from the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, that's C-I-G-I-E, CIGI, completes its work. When a federal watchdog is accused of misconduct and then the organization decides it's warrants attention, another inspector general is assigned to investigate under a system set up by Congress. Susan Rouge Hudson, special counselor to CIGI, said in an email 
that the organization is reviewing the complaint, and we look forward to working with the DOJ on the matter. Kufari, his chief of staff, Kristen Fredericks, remember her, and his general counsel, James Reed, as well as a former government official named Joseph Gangloff, the four who filed the federal lawsuit, they declined to comment. The lawsuit is an unusual broadside against a federal watchdog community by one of its own. It accuses the panel of exceeding its authority and of illegal interference in the operations of one of the government's largest oversight offices. It has set off hand-wringing and anger in the inspector general community. CIGI leaders met by Zoom on Wednesday to discuss how to proceed and notify the Department of Justice, which will represent them. The DOJ is going to represent this panel of inspectors general investigating Kufari. Quote, he's challenged the structure of a body statutorily created by Congress, said one inspector general who spoke anonymously. We're appalled and exhausted by him. (laughs) Appalled and exhausted. It's a great way to describe Trump and anyone he's ever appointed. Kufari, confirmed by the Senate in July of 2019, has faced questions from lawmakers and advocates since last summer over his agency's handling of the missing text messages. After learning the messages had been erased as part of a migration to new devices, uh, just a, oh, just a, what, how we, we just wanted to change our devices on in January of 2021. Just, you know, normal timing. But after learning the messages had been erased, Kufari waited months to disclose to Congress that his office had discovered the deletions and did not press Homeland Security officials to explain why they didn't preserve the records. The Secret Service later provided the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack with thousands of records after reviewing its communications database from the time of the attack, but nearly all the records had been shared previously with Kufari's office in Congress. Kufari also blocked his own investigators from examining the Secret Service agent's phones. His actions prompted several congressional inquiries led by Democrats who controlled the House last year. Kufari's 173-page complaint filed this week in U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia discloses that investigators from SIGI's Integrity Committee recently told Kufari and Fredericks that alleged deletions of the Secret Service text messages, which referenced the events of January 6th, are now a subject of their investigation. The lawsuit denies that any official in the Inspector General's office has any control over the Secret Service or over where texts by members of that organization go. The complaint alleges broadly that investigators from the Office of Department of Transportation Inspector General, Eric Soskin, which is conducting the probe, have harassed Kufari and his staff to respond to requests for documents and other information. Subpoenas for documents? Subpoenas, subpoenas, decus, take them? Take them, take them? That's not harassment. That's investigation. Okay? Now, Kufari, Fredericks, and Reed also complain the investigators have refused their demands to have government lawyers represent them, forcing them to pay their own legal bills. A common practice when a federal employee's come under investigation. I paid for my own attorneys. You get two, too, Mr. Kufari. The lawsuit claims the Integrity Committee has abused its power and is operating under an unconstitutional structure since its members are not appointed by the president. This is something Congress set up, you dumb dildo. The plaintiffs seek to prohibit the investigation into Kufari and find the committee's existence unlawful. (laughs) They're going to lose. He's going to lose. And Benny Thompson agrees. He said Sigi's congressional mandate is not only to develop policies for offices of inspectors general, but to promptly investigate allegations of wrongdoing made against inspectors general and their staff. It must be allowed to do its job. And Michael Bromwich, former federal prosecutor, 
the lawsuit will likely fail. I do think the court will not want to enmesh itself in the inner workings of the inspector general community. Or, you know, find me any precedent that this rule set up by Congress is unconstitutional. Now, Biden has faced calls to fire Kufari from the Project on Government Oversight, nonprofit. I've also called for him to fire Kufari. Last fall, employees from every department of Kufari's office sent the president an unsigned letter calling on him to dismiss him, describing a climate of continuous mismanagement of the OIG at its highest levels. The White House didn't respond to a request for comment. Gangloff, the fourth plaintiff suing this SIGI panel, does not work at Homeland Security. He is the former chief counsel for the Social Security Administration Inspector General. That's Gail Ennis. Ennis is under multiple investigations following reporting by the Washington Post that revealed how an anti-fraud program imposed massive penalties on disabled and elderly people. One probe is being led by the SIGI panel. The lawsuit says Gangloff, who was in charge of the program, was notified last year he was under investigation. He alleges he has not been afforded a venue to respond or hear details. He disputes the Integrity Committee's right to investigate him since he has left government service. So these inspectors general go and inspect and investigate, but they do not want to be subject to the exact same kind of scrutiny themselves. It's absolute bullshit. The lawsuit is not Kufari's first attempt to push back against the investigation. He and his staff have for months refused to release documents and tried to block interviews, effectively delaying the probe. Kufari also enlisted Republican allies in Congress to demand investigators scale back records requests and to press investigators to explain their motives. Our motives were investigating you. Dickhead. Kufari and his staff have complained to senators of a politically motivated fishing expedition. Boy, we're, that's familiar language, fishing expedition, designed to undermine him and his attempts to clean up the inspector general's office. I'm going to clean up this town. Okay, Goldie Wilson. I fucking told you guys, this Kufari guy is a pain in the ass. He is insufferable. He, he's exhausting, right? What did they say? He's exhausting. Just we're appalled and exhausted by him. That's the those are the the phrases. That's the phrase. Appalled and exhausted. I I really hope the the Department of Justice and Siji get somewhere on this, or if Siji makes a criminal referral to the Department of Justice, because if he sat on that shit for eighteen months so that he could erase it and then pretend like he didn't know, well, well, we only have to hold him for eighteen months, and now they're gone but you knew about it more than a year earlier. And again, they didn't point it out in this story in the Washington Post, and I haven't really seen it talked about on, on mainstream media, only here on this podcast. He informed Congress right after that 18-month mark. So if they, if they have communications that show that, that would be pretty damning. All right, next up from Sarah McCammon at NPR. Federal judges in two states issued contradictory decisions Friday evening that could drastically impact access to abortion drugs. In Texas, Judge Matthew Kazmarek, Kazmark maybe, ruled that the FDA improperly approved the abortion pill Mifepristone more than 20 years ago, 23 years ago. A coalition of anti-abortion rights groups called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, and they sued the FDA last year. The judge issued a nationwide injunction pausing the FDA's approval, which is set to take effect in seven days. Within hours of that decision, 
U.S. District Judge Thomas O. Rice issued a ruling in a separate case in Washington state. That lawsuit, filed by a coalition of Democratic attorneys general in 17 states in the District of Columbia, sought to block the FDA from pulling the drug from the market. Rice's decision blocks the FDA from altering the status quo and rights as it relates to the availability of mifepristone. These are dueling decisions. Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson told NPR Friday he believes the judge's ruling could make it possible for patients in those states to continue using mifepristone for abortion in the short term, even after the Texas decision takes effect. So basically, while we're waiting for the Supreme Court to take up this case, that people can still have access to this drug. Hours after the Texas ruling, the DOJ appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals to the Fifth Circuit. It was a very conservative circuit. The Justice Department says it also is reviewing the decision in Washington state. The implications of the Texas ruling is, are complicated by the outcome of the Washington state lawsuit. Prior to the rulings being issued, Amanda Allen, senior counsel and director of the Lawyering Project, which supports abortion rights, told NPR that the prospect of two very conflicting orders from federal courts could impose very different obligations on the FDA that would be very untenable for the FDA to try to reconcile. A lot of people think that that's why this is going to be fast-tracked to SCOTUS. Allen said the FDA could decide to issue guidance for prescribers about how to interpret the rulings, but she says such a conflict between the federal courts might well end up before the Supreme Court. It will. I'm sure it will. Lawyers and advocates on both sides of this case say it's likely to move quickly, and I agree. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. But this judge, you know, and I said this at the top of the show, Senator Wyden says that the FDA should ignore this judge's ruling. I, I disagree with that. I don't think we should ever ignore a court ruling. We should fight it the proper way with appeals. It'll be overturned. He has the, he has no, they, he doesn't have standing to decide this, much like Eileen Cannon didn't have jurisdiction to decide the special master case in the documents, Mar-a-Lago documents thing. And that was the 11th Circuit, also a pretty conservative circuit. Fifth is a little more conservative. But I, I don't think, even if the Supreme Court is, we know, super, super anti-choice, if there's no standing, you can't even get to the merits. You know what I mean? It's like the order of operations for the courts. You got to do standing and jurisdiction first. Then if you have standing and jurisdiction, then you can maybe talk about the actual merits of the case. So we'll see how the Fifth Circuit rules and then we'll go from there. But absolute, that's just, it's, you know, I know you know how I feel because you feel the same way. All right, from Harris and Lamoth at the Washington Post. On Saturday, as U.S. officials and their foreign allies scrambled to understand how dozens of classified intel docs ended up on the Internet, they were stunned and occasionally infuriated at the extraordinary range of detail the files exposed about how the U.S. spies on friends and foes alike. The documents, which appear to have come at least in part from the Pentagon, at least they appear that way, are marked as highly classified. They offer tactical information about the war in Ukraine, including the country's combat capabilities. Also, casualties, which are falsified. According to one defense official, many of the documents seem to have been prepared over the winter for Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and other senior military officials, but they were available to other U.S. personnel and contract employees with the requisite security clearances. Interesting, Mark Milley comes up here because we recently learned uh, last week, as a matter of fact, and Andy and I discuss it in the latest Jack podcast, 
that some of the documents that uh, Jack Smith is asking whether some of the documents have to do with Mark Milley that are at Mar-a-Lago, right? So does he have some documents? Because, you know, here's the thing. It's like a timing thing, right? He stole these documents before the war in Ukraine, before Putin invaded, okay? But does he have documents that can then be altered and falsified by the GRU and presented as current? Do you know what I'm saying? Kind of like how they took Hunter Biden's information, uploaded it to a laptop, added some false shit, and, and you know, that it falsified it. They tried to do this, the uh, Concord Management, right? That is Yevgeny Prigozhin's company that ran the Internet Research Agency that was indicted by Robert Mueller. They came in and uh, and uh, sued and got tried to do document requests and discovery with Bob Mueller's team, and they got some documents, but not all. And then they they altered those documents to make them look like they said something else. And that's when the DOJ just dropped the case and was like, "Get fuck you. You're abusing the courts. It's Russian disinformation, and this is what it sounds like to me. Right? Because we have the Concord management. We have, I mean, and Trump with the Mark Milley documents. I, I'm going way out on a crazy super space beans here, but I think some of the Mark Milley documents that Trump took ended up in some bad people's hands. Maybe somebody like John Solomon right? The right-wing reporter, because this was released on Discord, which is a weird place to read 4chan, really right-wing channels. So I think maybe he had some Mark Milley documents. They falsified them. They tampered with them, you know, altered them and released them as current information. That's just my two cents. That's just my super space beans. Other documents include analysis from U.S. intel agencies about Russia and several other countries, all based on information gleaned from classified sources. Officials in several countries said they were trying to assess the damage from the disclosures, and many were left wondering how they had gone unnoticed for so long. Photographs of at least seven dozen pages of highly classified documents, which looked to have been printed and then folded together into a packet, were shared on February 28th and March 2nd on Discord, which is that chat platform I was just telling you about. Popular with gamers, the documents were shared by a user called Wow Mao. Some of the documents appear to be detailed Ukraine battlefield assessments prepared over the winter for senior Pentagon leaders. But officials only became aware that the documents were sitting on a public server around the time that the New York Times first reported the leak on Thursday. That's according to people familiar. Again, my sense, these are altered documents as part of a Russian disinformation campaign to sow discord among the U.S. and its intelligence allies and to try to make Russia look better. The Justice Department has opened an investigation. A spokeswoman for Discord, where the earliest known copies of the images were posted, declined to comment. And in a related story from Hudson and Lovelock at the Washington Post, as the Biden administration races to investigate the leak I was just talking about, much of Washington is silent about a particularly sensitive disclosure within that trove of documents. An alleged revolt by Israel's top spy service against the judicial overhaul proposed by Netanyahu. The leaked document, labeled Top Secret, says that in February, senior leaders of the Mossad spy service advocated for Mossad officials and Israeli citizens to protest the new Israeli government's proposed judicial reforms, including several explicit calls to action that decried the Israeli government, according to Signals Intelligence. By itself, by the way, 
Remember Donald leaked Israeli intelligence to Lavrov and the other guy, uh, the Russians in the Oval Office, like in his first week? Just saying. By itself, the direct intervention into Israeli politics by Mossad, which is the spy service forbidden from wading into domestic matters, would be significant. It would be a significant revelation. That the information surfaced as a result, apparently, of U.S. espionage on its closest Middle East ally could further inflame what has been a time of historic political unrest in Israel. Who would want that? Who would want that? (laughs) Saudis? UAE? The memo is among the dozens of images leaked online and subsequently obtained by the Post and other news outlets, appearing to show worldwide intelligence briefings on countries in the Middle East, Europe, Latin America, Asia, and Africa, tactical level battlefield updates and assessments of Ukraine's defense capabilities, and much, much more. Information in the documents dating to February and March appears to have been prepared for senior Pentagon leaders and made available to hundreds of other personnel and contract employees with appropriate security clearances. The Mossad opposition came mainly from grassroots or retired officials, as serving lawmakers and security figures stood supportive or tight-lipped. The only major figure to break ranks, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, himself under pressure from former military colleagues, did so in late March. The following day, Netanyahu announced that he was fired, although he still remains in office. Washington's role in exposing Mossad's concerns about the overhaul could draw the fire of Israeli conservatives, some of whom already accused the United States of secretly fomenting the protests. Who? What party? would want to foment the ire of Israeli conservatives. Last month, Netanyahu's son, Yair, claimed the U.S. State Department was behind the protest in Israel with the aim of overthrowing Netanyahu, apparently in order to conclude an agreement with the Iranians. Who? (laughs) That seems obvious to me. But, you know, I'm just full of space beans. I'll keep you posted on this story. As it develops, everybody, we'll be right back with the good news. Stick around. After these messages, we'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, uh, you want to give a shout out to somebody you love, an adoptable pet in your area, if you can't pay pod pet tax, your pod pets in costumes or not, nakies, however you want to send them, frog orgies, baby pictures. If you have a case you need settled, a dispute that you want settled in Amy's court, Amy Carrera will be back on the show this week. You can send anything that you want into us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up from Jana. While Dana is gone, I fill in her part at the end when you say, I've been AG, I whisper, and I've been DG. Just wanted to say. For pet tax, I've added a pic of my pregnant foster kitty, Amber. By the way, I'll, I'll try to leave some space for you to say that at the end of the sign-off. Pick of my pregnant foster kitty. She's a snowshoe Siamese I found living on the streets. I'm not sure she wasn't bred, but when her kittens finally make their appearance, I'll let you know more about it. She's huge. I don't know how she hasn't had them yet. Love y'all. I cannot wait to see. Oh my God, look at the little preggy kitty. Pregonant. Pregante. Do I get pregort with my girlfriend? Oh, what a honey. Yes, I can't wait to see pictures, Jana. Thank you so much. 
Next up from Jackie, pronouns she and her. Hello, Legumanistas. Ooh, I like it. Greetings from the land of Big Gretch. Yeah, the mitten that's clapping back at MAGA, the great state of Michigan. I'm so excited our neighbors to the West in Wisconsin are joining us, a vanguard of legislative progress. Uh, me too, Jackie, me too. I'm also the mom of kids who dressed up as Hamilton for Halloween. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, who begged to also go to the happy hours. These same children also like to sit in the tape square since the cats Avuvu, nicknamed Bastardized from Eleven, and Obsidian, a.k.a. Swiffer Cat, largely could not give fewer fucks about it. The tape square, that is. Beans team, keep up the great work. I love and appreciate hearing you guys on my commute to a magatastic town for work each day. The last pick is the lipstick I wore for arraignment day. Fuck Trump by lip. It's called Fuck Trump by Lip Slut. Yes. I want to give them a shout out because they create cause driven makeup with a killer sense of humor. All right. Lip Slut. Fuck Trump. I'm, there's a color and I can't wait to see it. I'm going to scroll down here in a second. And half of earnings are donated to charities chosen by popular vote. Some of the options for the Fuck Trump donations go to the ACLU, Now, Rain, Planned Parenthood, or She Should Run. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jackie. And I love that. I love the land of Big Gretch, the mitten that's clapping back at MAGA, the great state of Michigan. Oh, there's a child in the square. Very cute. Another child in the square. Very cute. Oh, I like that color. Fuck Trump by Lip Slut. Thank you for sending that in. Everybody check out Lip Slut. That's pretty awesome. Next up from Debbie, I put a tape square on the floor and my cat Charlie wouldn't come into the room. My dog walked over and sniffed it and then dragged his ass inside the square. <laughs> Alas, in my house, the tape square is not a cat trap. It's toilet paper. Charlie didn't go back into the room for a whole day after the square was removed. Very interesting. I also want to comment on the expulsions of the legislators in Tennessee. It is disgraceful. I hope the Justice Department or the ACLU brings a lawsuit. Me too, Debbie. If you hear anything about this and there's a place to donate and help, please let us know. I will. Next up from Jensky rhymes. Oh, Jansky rhymes with Banksy. Janksy? Okay. Rhymes with Banksy. Janksy. Pronoun she and her. During the 2020 election, you featured my vote yard sign. Yes. In the newsletter. And you sent me one and I had it out front. I think you sent me two. And I put one out in front of my door and one out in front on the street because I'm in the back house. Overwhelmed with joy and relief to report that city council of my hometown, Manhattan Beach, finally voted this week to apologize to the Bruce and other black families for the racially motivated eminent domain actions the city took against them nearly 99 years ago at this site known as Bruce's Beach. Two years ago, against the recommendation of a city task force convened on the topic, the council at the time opted not to apologize to the families, instead choosing acknowledgement and condemnation. A dubious decision that thrust us into the national spotlight and not in a positive way. They were ruling from the minority, unfortunately, and not ideologically representative of the city, as it turns out. During the midterm elections, we were able to both fend off a hostile takeover attempt of our school board and thwart re-election aspirations of extremist council member who had demanded the banning of LGBTQ books in our schools. Defeating them was an uphill battle. The council member had raised four times what was necessary to win the local election. And had offered to bankroll the campaigns of others she thought would vote with her. Damn. She thought she could buy a controlling interest in both elected bodies. We weren't so sure she couldn't. But with hardworking boots on the ground, grassroots efforts, we were able to beat them. All. Sweeping the election decisively by more than 10 percentage points in every case with far less money to throw around. There's been a shift here in awareness, in BS detection, in understanding. And as it turns out, Nobody wants to be bought. 
The election result directly enabled the apology to the Bruce family and others. There's still work to be done, but it's a huge step in the right direction. On a personal note, since I made the vote art, I've had the privilege of making a few other notable pieces. My art was featured in an ad by local residents advocating for an apology for Bruce's Beach. And after that, I was honored to be asked to redesign the logo for the Organization of Justice for Bruce's Beach, which lobbied L.A. County to return original land valued at $20 million to the Bruce family in a landmark case of restitution one year ago. Beautiful art. We'll include it here. Though the cart came before the horse for the city of Manhattan Beach, I'm, I'm still overjoyed that our council has revisited and corrected the errant decision of the council prior. I believe it has created closure and unity in the community. An apology was not just the right thing to do, but also long overdue. Agreed. Thank you for all you do. And thank you for that wonderful submission. Next up from Len, pronouns he and him. Frogs here, frogs there. Frogs were jumping everywhere. Hello from the Chicago suburbs where we had another fun-filled Passover Seder with the grandkiddos, Gavin 12 and Livy 8. Great ages. Great ages. Part of the ritual is to recite the 10 plagues brought on uh, Pharaoh before he let the Israelites leave Egypt. They're pretty gruesome. I, I remember these plagues. Water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the killing of firstborn children. But part of the purpose of any good Seder is to engage and educate the children. So some years we sing silly songs. Some years we have little frogs at each place that will jump up. Some years the kids wear masks representing the different plagues. My wife is very creative. This year she got out the masks and some plastic frogs. Gavin loves to build things, so he made pyramids out of the plastic frogs. Livy wore a frog mask. And when we were clearing up after dinner, I happened to look at the box of frogs. I leave it to you to decide what was going on. <laughs> I hope everyone who celebrated whatever you celebrated had a joyous and meaningful holiday. And to conclude, here is the complete song with which I open. The Frog Song by Shirley Cohen. Uh, one morning when the pharaoh awoke in his bed, there were frogs in his bed and frogs on his head. Frogs on his nose and frogs on his toes. Frogs here, frogs there. Frogs were jumping everywhere. P.S. I cannot end without a shout out to you and everyone who lifted up the amazing Tennessee Three who continue to march for freedom from slavery that began at the Red Sea so long ago. Beautiful sentiment. Thank you so, so much for that submission, Len. And let's see. Oh, yep. There's some frogs. The plague. They're so cute. <laughs> Just a box of frogs. <laughs> Is this like a, a set? Like you could buy a box of all these different frogs if you collected different frogs over the years? I need to know. Thank you for that. Next up from Deborah, she, her, they. Passover frog orgy. I know, kind of bleak, but couldn't resist a personal laugh in the middle of Seder. Not really an animal person and have no small human. So the good news segment is more about your joy. Keep up the good fight. Froggies, more plague frogs. Thank you so much for sending those in. And thanks to everybody. And, you know, I'm just so thankful for you all. I really do appreciate you. Uh, we'll be back in your ears tomorrow. I hope you checked out the new episode of Jack. It's very, very good. So, uh, yeah, I think <laughs> I think we're getting closer to to a, a Justice Department indictment because, well, first of all, Trump is truthing World War Three to uh, just non sequitur, just with no reference. Uh, he's losing his mind again. And Jim Trusty went on all the Sunday shows yesterday. And all he could talk about was the documents case. Didn't talk about Georgia. Didn't talk about Manhattan. I mean, he did a little bit, but all he talked about was the documents case. Seems like something's up. All he needed, I think, left to go was Corcoran's testimony. 
and they probably got it already. Given how fast they got Cuccinelli in after Jeb Boesberg decided that those guys didn't have privilege. I mean, the appellate court came back on a Tuesday, right? Because they he asked for the emergency stay Monday. The appellate court said, get us an answer by tomorrow morning or get us your responses by tomorrow morning, your arguments. And then Tuesday morning, everybody had everything turned in. And then Tuesday later that morning, appellate court said, no, stay. And Tuesday afternoon, Cuccinelli was back in the grand jury. Same day. So I can't imagine, you know, once they decided Corcoran had to testify under the crime fraud exception, piercing attorney-client privilege, I can't imagine it would have taken more than a day or two to get him back in. And he was there to uh, last week. He was seen at the courthouse, but he was there with Jim Trustee to talk about the executive privilege case from what people understood. But if Trustee was on the Sunday show talking about the documents case, maybe Corcoran was there giving the rest of his testimony to the grand jury with Trustee as his attorney. Well, no. I don't know, but I'm just feeling it. Indictments only on Twitter at indictments only is ready. It's fired up. I've got all the photos of Ann B. Davis as Alice ready to go. Cause with every indictment, I attach a picture of Ann B. Davis as Alice from the Brady Bunch. And, uh, it's, 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 I'm, I'm excited. So thank you for letting me, I talked a lot. I know, um, it's been a very relaxing weekend and I tend to get verbose when I haven't had much, many people to talk to. So thank you very much, everybody. I'll see you tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to 
be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.